Bokertov. Today is Daf Vav, and we had just finished a fascinating discussion on Shabbos, on Daf Hay, about the minimum size of ten Tachim, and just to review that for one second, because it's so important, I think, in general, and in terms specifically of Sukkah ideas. So the question is, how do we know the minimum size of a Sukkah um, is ten Tachim? Twenty Amot, we gave various reasons, able to see the Shach, um, the ability of the Shach to give shade, um, but the exact quantity, exact number of 20 on 20 Amot was determined by the rabbi's application of that principle. As opposed to the idea of ten Tachim, where the Gemara understands that there's a more concrete derivation of exactly that number. And the Gemara gave um, uh, three reasons. The first one was we learn it from the Aron. The Aron was nine Tachim and the Kapart was one that makes ten. The second explanation was the Kruvim on the Aron, that their wingspan over, over the base of the Aron was ten Tachim. And the third was, which is going to be our focus today, was just the idea of Halach Lamosha Misinai. It's just a straight tradition. Now the first two, not exactly clear, well the first one in particular, what that has to do with a Sukkah. Um, and the Gemara basically says that, well, if the Aron and the Kaporet are ten Fachim, and the Divine Presence, the Shekhinah, hovered over the Kaporet, so, and the, and the Shekhinah never went down to the earth, that's why the Sukkah has to be ten Fachim. Like, it seems completely bizarre what the connection is. Rashi says that the connection is, is that, well, if ten Fachim close to the earth is the domain of the earth, then a machitza focusing on the wall of the sukkah has to be ten tzvachim because it has to go the entire height of the airspace of a domain. And according to that, it's a general rule of machitza. However, as we suggested at the time, a much more powerful idea is, is that it's the issue of sukkah as the anane kavod and God's divine presence hovering over the people, not just the cloud that sort of protected them, but actually the, the cloud of the God's presence, which is so present in the Mishkan and so on, and that if that pre- God's presence hovers over Ten Fachim and it hovers over the Sukkah, then the Sukkah has to be a minimum of Ten Fachim. It can't be lower because God's presence can't come any lower. And then it becomes a very powerful imagery of Sukkot with sort of, you know, as that sense of, of reenacting the period in the desert and actually having a very manifest and concrete experience of God's presence. And that's carried through by the idea of the Kruvim, although by the Kruvim it understands that what we learn from the Kruvim is that wingspan, it says, it's Sochachim, shades the area below it, canopies the area below it, and that teaches us that the idea of Schach is ten Fachim because to create a sense of a canopying of the space below. Nevertheless, again, what the Gemara is doing is putting us in the discussion of Sukkah and in the model of Sukkah right there in the Kodesh Kadashim and right there with that sort of immediate encounter with God. And again, thinking that this is coming on the heels of Yom Kippur, where Yom Kippur was all of this elaborate ritual to allow the Kohen Gadol to enter into the Kodesh Kadashim, and now comes Sukkot five days later, and we're envisioning the Sukkah as some reenactment or some sort of experience of the Kodesh Kadashim, of the Aron of the Kaporas, you know, or of the Kruvim, and that sense of Yom Kippur leading to, you know, and uh, the forgiveness of Yom Kippur, of Torah of Yom Kippur, leading to that sense of, you know, of the Divine Presence. So the, the imagery is very, very powerful. And then we get to the last answer, which is the much more sort of technical answer of, no, we just have this tradition, that ten fucking, but I don't, but it's important to remember the imagery there, which is very powerful and seems to be really distinctive to Sukkah, although Rashi um, and Tosus try to make it more general about the general idea of a mechitza. So now let's pick up from the Gemara. The Gemara says like this. Um, okay. Um, the Amar, uh, about eight lines from the bottom. The Amar Rabbi Chiyabar Ashi, Amar Rav, 
Shiurin chatitin like again seven seven eight lines on the bottom on hand with that. Shiurin chatitin mechitzin halach lemoshe misina. Shiurin minimum quantities halachas of chatitza of obstructions when somebody goes to the mikvah and halachas relating to mechitza one of which is the minimum height here. Now the idea of ten tefachin is going to be a mechitza issue, not a schach issue. All of these are halach lemoshe misina. I mean, there's others halach of mechitza as well, which we say are halach l'moshe misinai. So, Gemara says, Shurim um, What do you mean it's like an oral tradition going back to Sinai? Actually, it's biblical. So, quite fascinating. Biblical is different than halach l'moshe misinai. Halach l'moshe misinai is not linked in a verse. It's a tradition going back to Moshe, but it's not linked in a verse. Whereas Doraita means it's derived from a verse. Where do you see it's still right? So the verse says, So all of these things of the land of Israel. And now we're going to say, This entire verse is telling you not just of all the foods that are in Israel, all the amazing produce of the land, but that all, all the, uh, you know, from a Torah perspective, it's like halachic man, you know, you see a tree, you can't smell it or feel it. All you can do is see it's halachic category. So, oh, that's Arla for years, whatever. So all of these wonderful things are because all of the various produce of Israel gives you the different basis for halachic, halachic shirim. How does this work? Um, chita, so wheat, for a leprous house. Somebody goes into a leprous house. The and your clothes are on your shoulder. You're not wearing them. And you're holding on to your sandal and your rings. They're not on. Your ring isn't on your finger. It's in the palm of your hand. Who You and they are tummy immediately. Now, let's say, however, it wasn't that you were carrying these, you were wearing them. You were wearing your clothes, your sandals were on your, sh- on your, your, were on your feet, the and your rings were actually being worn on your fingers. You are Tame immediately. And, you, and they are tahor until you wait the time it takes to eat a half of loaf of bread. Paschitin arin, a, a, a loaf made out of wheat flour, not barley flour. Mesav ochel and eating it in a focused way, so you're reclining and eating, which for them would be the focused way of eating, because that's like, you know, you know that's how you eat, is when you recline by the table and you put that all your attention. And dipping it into some sauce, because, you know, when you dip it into a sauce, it goes faster. Um... Um, okay, and that's what and that's what Chita tells you. What does this all mean? It means that the Torah says that if somebody comes into the house of a that has leprosy, not of a lep, of a, of somebody who is a mitzvah, but the house itself has a spot of leprosy, it says that um, that you become tamei. Okay, but it says if you eat in the house, your clothes become tamei. You and your clothes become tamei. And the rabbis understand it doesn't literally mean eat. Eat means you wait in the house the time it takes you to eat. Okay, so that's what it means. So if you just walk in, you're coming immediately. If you're holding on to your clothes, then your clothes are just seen as an object, as, an, as, any, any, you know, as any generic object, and therefore they become coming immediately. But interestingly, if you're wearing your clothes, that's when it says that if you eat in the house, you and your clothes become tame. So it means the clothes. So again, the rabbis interpret this meaning if you wait in the house long enough to the time it takes to eat, then the clothes that are being worn will become tame. So that takes longer for the clothes that are being worn to become tame than anything else. Very bizarre. And it's the time it takes to eat. Well, eat how much? So eat a meal. What's a meal? A meal is a pras, which is half a loaf of bread, where a standard loaf of bread was two meals worth. 
what type of a loaf of bread? Well, it's wheat bread. Wheat bread made, you know, reclining and dipping and all of those criteria affect the amount of time it will take you to eat it. So that's a shear that's learned from the Torah that wheat determines the type of bread that we normally measure when in ever halacha, it's not only this, by the way. You know halacha is always saying that if you eat a kezayis over the time of bichteach pras, it all combines to a minimum kezayis, like you probably think you eat the kezayis of matzah, or if you're doing an aveira and you're eating a kezayis of nevela, you know, the time it takes to combine is achilas pras. What type of half loaf of bread? Half loaf of wheat bread. So that's where wheat factors in to the halachas of shiurim. Yes. So in this case, the house is an akatuma. Yep. You're inside, you become a risha. Right. And the clothes don't become immediately a shady because... No, the clothes become a risha too, because they're inside. Well, but eventually they do, but if they... But clothes... You're touching the clothes would ordinarily make them... Oh, uh, yeah, that's... can't true. become a shady. Um, right. And that's why... That's the reason why... That is that's correct. Delight. That is okay. correct. Okay. So, okay, so that's where, we, that's where wheat is relevant for the laws of Shurim. So, barley, non, we taught in the Mishnah. Add some kish to a piece of bone the size of a, of a uh, barley, of a, of a, what do you call it, uh, a kernel of barley? What would you call it? Mm-hmm. A kernel of barley. Mitami b'magal b'masa, so human bone, or a, even a tiny amount the size of a kernel of barley, causes chuma with touch and carrying. But not in under a tent, you know, for a corpse to cause chuma under a tent, under a rooftop, it has to be something that's really representative of the whole corpse and a tiny bit of bone would not we need to be the skull or most of the bones other ty- a, a, a much larger amount but nevertheless you use a barley a kernel of barley to measure the minimum amount of bone to cause tumor by contact so that's se'ora gefen how about wine kidei revius gain lenozir because a nazir does not transgress until he drinks a revi'it, a quarter of a log of wine about three and a half ounces now there is a problem with this with, with this sort of application. What's the problem? Until now, chita, seora, are things you use to measure other things. How much, how, what type of wheat, what type of bread? Wheat bread. How much bone? Barley's worth of bone. Here we're saying, what does wine tell you? Oh, you're only chayev when you drink a revius of wine. That's the thing being measured. It's not the, it's not the basis of measurement. Right? And we already know in the Torah that a Nazar can't drink a wine. Where do we... So what's this telling... We can't drink wine. So what's this telling us? So Rashi has a brilliant answer. I mean, there's a long toast to us, but I'll just give you Rashi's answer. Rashi says, because a Nazar transgresses not only when he drinks wine, but also when he drinks the solids of the grapes, right? Chartsanim v'adzag. Like grape, you know, skins and the, uh, gra- and the pits. So how much of that? So it's a revius, actually, not a kezayis, at least according, you know, to one approach. So if it's a revius, so Rashi says, well, how do you measure a revius of, of solids? How are you going to measure a revius of, you know, grape leaves, let's say? So what's, what's the way we, me- we do measurements of volume, of, of like things that are not, that are solids? Nowadays, what's, what's the measure, what's the size? Right, wa- right, water displacement, yeah. right? Liquid displacement. So Rashi says, right, you find, fill up something with, you know, with liquid, you put in the thing, and then a revius comes out, and you know you have a revius. He says, ah, but what liquid do you fill it up with? Water or wine? What difference does it make? He says, Charlie, what difference does it make? It does, if, you, if you're measuring the volume, it doesn't make a difference well, it, at all. It, it no, does. If you're measuring because the weight, it does. The surface tension. Yeah. Okay, so he says the surface tension of wine is greater than the surface tension of water, so therefore, in order to measure a revius of 
of, of wine displacement through the liquid displacement measure, you're going to need a little bit more than if you were doing the water because it will take more to break the surface tension. So that's, <laughs> so that's what Rashi says is the significance that you... Once you break the surface tension, it's not going to matter. Uh, I guess. Yeah. yeah, okay, I don't know. We'll have to do some experiments. But Rashi says that's the point. The point is that you use wine for the, for the, in order to do the measurement using uh, water displacement or a wine displacement. Okay, Tosu has some other questions. Te'ina, um, a fig, kigrogeris lehutat Shabbat. Because for carrying on Shabbat, and it, what's the minimum size of care that you transgress carrying? <coughs> so for all food stuff, it is the size of a grogeris of a dried fig. Um, rimon, a pomegranate. Did not kokre bale batim, shiran to rimonim. All the vessels of homeowners, the size is a rimon. What does that mean? How big of a hole do I have to have in my vessel for it no longer to be considered a vessel um, for purposes of it becoming tameh? When, when does it stop being a vessel? So if it is a, if I'm a storekeeper, if I'm a, a merchant, I'm selling the vessels, even one tiny hole, I can't sell it anymore. It goes in the remainder stack or something. So it stops being a vessel. Okay? If, however, I'm a homeowner, and my thing breaks a little bit, well, if it gets a little bit of a hole, fine, I'll stop using it for keeping liquids. I'll keep olives in it. Okay, but now I've got a, size, a hole the size of an olive. Fine, I'll keep apples and oranges in it. At what size is the hole so big that I throw it out? So only when it gets to be the size of a pomegranate. Then I can't even keep pomegranates in it. What am I going to use it for? So then I throw it out. So pomegranate is the size of the hole that even for a homeowner, the vessel stops being a vessel. Eretz says, a land of olive oil and honey. So let's first start with Zeis Shemen, olives. Eretz, Shekosh Yurek All of its minimum sizes are measured by a Kezayis. So the Gemara says, Kosh Yurek, all of the sizes? Salkadaitis, do you really think that's true? Haika honey garment, how about everything we said before? There's some that are measured by a barley and some that are measured by, you know, by, by, by a fig. Ella, Ema, Sharov, Shurek, Most measurements are Kezayas. So if anybody asks you, what is the standard rabbinic measurement, you would say Kezayas, right? So everything, all the forbidden foodstuffs, all the mitzvahs to eat foodstuffs, all of the amounts, like when you measure amounts of things that cause tuma, how much of an avela, how much of a mace, or almost, you know, the standard measurement is a Kezayas. So that's Zayas. All right. Um, Devash, honey. Now, honey here is understood to be honey of things that grow from the ground, so primarily also date honey. So, like we just learned in Sechus Yoma, like a fat, you know, uh, a dried um, uh, date for Yom Kippur, that's the amount for Yom Kippur, that if you eat, you are no longer fasting. Anyway, you have all seven things teach you shiurim, so you see Amad Yoraisen, you see it's not a tradition, you see it's all derived from the verse. So the Gemara says, does that really make sense? Um, uh, it doesn't mean, what do you mean? <laughs> the verses just give you different foodstuffs. How do you know to match up which foodstuff to which type of measurement it's going to be measuring? Right? Then there's absolutely no basis in the verse to do this n- nice little correspondence that you just did. Ella, you have to say, the cross, you have to say that it's just a tradition, and yes, it was very nice that we quoted the verse, but that was just an asmachta. We don't really derive it from the verse. It really is a halachla moshemisinai. Now, it is very interesting to look at the girsa here on the side, and the right-hand margin, where it says, you see it says, the brachos memal famuzbet isa, the far right-hand margin, midrabanan, the kra Rather, it's all rabbinic, and the verse is only in Asmachta. And this raises a fascinating question about 
can halacha Moshe Misinai sometimes be called a Durabanan? Is it sort of loosely called a Durabanan? Or maybe say something opposite. Halacha Moshe Misinai maybe doesn't always mean that it's directly passed down halacha Moshe Misinai in that sense. Maybe it means somewhat like the rabbis had latitude to define what it meant. Right? That's an idea we had earlier on as well, you know, that we had, you know, we had in Yoma this idea that the Torah gave the rabbis some latitude to define what would constitute the other forms of fasting in addition to eating and drinking. You know, so how much here is it that, there, that, that this is, means that it's actual, the number is passed down? Or does it actually mean that there was like latitude for the rabbis? Ultimately, it affects Torah law. When do you transgress? When do you do the mitzvah? There's profound implication for Torah law, but maybe there was a certain amount of license given to the rabbis to define it. So this issue of Drabanan and, and Halacha Moshe Misinai, we'll see that in a minute as well. There is some ambiguity around that. Around that. Okay, so now we continue. So that, Shi'urin our Halacha Moshe Misinai. Now we still have left Chatzitzin and Mechitza. Those are the other two. So let's take a look. So, chatzitzin, um, now, obstructions for going to the mikvah and for vessels, but also for people. And I want to remind everybody that, that we're not talking specifically about nida. In the time of the uh, Gemara, we were just as easily talking about men, right? Not just because men, uh, because, well, it was, if, you, if you're in the time, certainly when you had the takana, that, you can't, that a man couldn't daven or say brachos if he was a balkari, had seminal omission, then men are going to the mikvah at least as much as women are, you know? So, let's take a look um, so it says um, um, so anyway so just to keep that in mind when we're talking about chatzitza so chatzitza in deraisininu that's biblical that there's a prop that there's an issue with chatzitza the chsiv the verse says for chas kisaro b'mayim or um, as kobisaro or what, what's the side here sir you have as kisaro okay for chas kisaro b'mayim maybe we quote the only kisaro later hold on Okay, anyway, you wash your flesh in water. So, nothing should interfere. So, nothing should be a, a, a obstruction between the flesh and the water. Um, so, so, you see, it's learned from the Pasuk. What do you need to halach lemash No, so what says no? I'll say, halach lemash misinai is coming for what purpose? for the purpose of telling you that uh, the ha- of the issues relating to the hair. What does this mean? Like Rabbi Barbachana teaches, if you have one strand of hair which is tied onto itself, like a knot in one strand of hair, that's a chatzitza because it's a tight knot, it's one strand tied on itself, and the water can't get into the knot. So the hair is being, you know, the hair that's part of the knot is being blocked from water, from the water. Shalosh enim chotzot. It's three hairs that are knotted onto themselves. So it's looser because it's, you know, it's it's uh, three separate strands that, you know, when you try when you knot them together, you're not, just not going to get as tight of a knot. So that's not a chazi, so the water can get into. Shtayim in yodeya. Two, I don't know. Now, the, presumably, the whole purpose of quoting this was not to get into a discussion of how many strands of hair is a not a chatzitza, or to say that the halach Moshe Misinai was specifically telling you X number of strands of hair. The purpose of quoting this was only to sh- show you that chatzitzas matter with the hair, not only with the, fl- the flesh. Now, why would you need a halach Moshe Misinai? Because where do we learn chatzitza from? From the verse that says, Es b'saro b'mayim. Bisaro has to be Bamayim. So, your flesh, not your 
hair. So maybe if I only had the verse, I would have said, maybe your hair doesn't even have to go under water. Or even if it has to go under water, maybe a chatzitz isn't a problem. Because the Torah only says, besorrow b'mayim. How do I know to include the hair? That's what the Halach Lemoshim Yisinai comes to teach you. So the Gemara says, one minute. Your hair is also biblical that it has to touch water and go under water. The verse says, You shall, um, you know, bathe your flesh with water. But bathe here means, you know, immerse. And so the, the drasha is, why does it say es pisaro? Why don't you say rachat pisaro? So es teaches you es as comes to tell you something that's an attendant to, connected to, but not the thing itself. So espesaro means not only your flesh, but the espesaro, the thing connected to your flesh, your hair as well. Umayniu, what is that sorrow? It's your hair, right? So you know, like people know the famous Russia, right? The hafta es Hashem What does es include, right? And that you know, so uh, and then Rabbi Akiva came and said es lurabos tamid echachadim, right? Or we say the hafta es avichavesi mecha es lurabos achicha hagadol. You know, we always are using like es, right? This is nachmish kamzu would be dorish all the es in the Torah to tell you es means something connected to, associated with. So we learn it out from the word es pesaro. So therefore, you don't need a halakha Moshe Mishinai to tell you the hair. So the Gemara says, so, so, okay, let's try again. Ki asi yilchza, for what purpose do we have the halakha Moshe Mishinai? L'chei Rabbi Yitzchak, like Rabbi Yitzchak. The Amr Rabbi Yitzchak, because Rabbi Yitzchak teaches, Zvar Torah, biblically, Ruvo umaktid alav kotzeh. What creates a chatzitza biblically? So biblically, you need it to be most of your body, and you have to be maktid. You have to not want it on your body. Okay? So... That's going to be a pretty, pretty high threshold, or pretty hard to imagine what types of things would be a chatzitsa. So, I guess if you've got like mud over the majority of your body and you haven't gotten around to getting it off you. Okay, but, and even if it was on the majority of your body, if you didn't care, what would be something on the majority of your body you didn't care? Um, let's say, for example, you had a full body cast, although that raises questions. Is that considered makbid? Because you won't want it on later, but you do want it on now. Okay? But let's say, for example, you were, um, um, you were a painter and you got paint on your body and you, you didn't bother cleaning it off. That was a natural thing, although I can't imagine on the majority of your body. Anyway, you would need both criteria for it to be a chatzitza. Okay. The Gazru, then the rabbis came along and they made a The al-rubo she'eno mishum rubo ha-machdid. That if it's on the majority of your body, even if you don't care about it, it's still a problem. Because if we allow that, it'll lead to a case of majority and machdid. Right? So it's similar enough. It's similar that it has rof, even though it doesn't have machdid. Okay, this, and similarly, and this is the next category is the one that's the real issue for chathesis nowadays. Even if it's only on the minority of your body, if, as long as you're makbid, that rabbinically is a problem, because it has one of the two characteristics, it's makbid, and therefore one of the two, that's close enough, and therefore we say it's wrong. That's obviously the vast majority of chassizas nowadays, on the minority of your body, but, and the whole question boils down to, how do you define makbid? I think I mentioned this once before, I'll just say for a second, I think to some degree it's rooted in the question of conceptually the idea of chatzitza. Is the idea of chatzitza when it's not a problem? I mean, if something's on your body and you're not makbid, what difference should it make? Technically, the water still isn't touching your body. So there's two explanations. One explanation is, if I'm not makbid, it's like I want to leave it there and like it is integrated and becomes part of my body. The other explanation is, no, as long as I'm not makbid, it's not the halacha that the water has to touch every inch of my body. 
The halacha is I have to fully immerse in the water and there can't be an obstruction. So if I'm not makbid, it's not, it's not designated as an obstruction. Something that I actively don't want there is seen as a foreign body and an obstruction. Something that I don't care one way or the other. Okay, the water didn't touch me because not a lot of the water has touched. It's just I have to be fully immersed and there's no obstruction. That doesn't qualify as an obstruction. There's a big difference between the two. Because if you say that I have to make it part of my body, you demand a much higher threshold. It's not enough just that I don't care that it's there. In some way, I have to actively want it there for it to be integrated and considered part of my body. If you say the whole issue is that as long as, you don't, or as long as you're not trying to actively get rid of it, it's not considered an obstruction, that means most cases, I'm, I don't care one way or the other. I haven't even thought about it. Big deal, right? So there's a huge question about chatzitzas, what defines eno makbid. All the halachic questions about mechitzah, not all, but the vast majority are that question. If you have a very high threshold, because conceptually you need to make it almost part of the body, you actively want it on, and you need it on, and maybe like if you need it on, it's like stitches that can't come out, and other types of things, or is it an issue that says, nah, I don't care one way or the other, and then it's much easier to say it's not a problem. Okay, so that is the idea of makbid, Biblically, you need both, the majority and Machbid. Rabbinically, one or the other is enough to be a problem. So the Gemara says, the leagues are nami, almir te'eno Machbid, mishumir ha Let's make it, let's, well, heck, as long as we're at it, let's say even a, a minority that's eno Machbid. You know, that'll lead to a case that's also somewhat, at least, it, I mean, it's something there, it's something in the same parsha. So the Gemara says, no. Inami mishum rubo sheino makbid, or let's say even a majority. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, Nami al mir sheino makbid mishum mir hamakbid, because if you allow a mir sheino makbid, it'll lead to a mir hamakbid. Inami mishum rubo sheino makbid, or lead to a majority that you're not makbid. He gusel. My answer is no. He gufa gzera. I'm a nekem and he's gzera gzera. That itself is gzera. What? Are we going to come and make gzera to gzera? This is the classic principle that you don't make gzera to gzera. Let me demonstrate this to you visually. This hopefully will help you in general to the idea of Xero I don't know if it will or not. But if you think about this as, right, as a, uh, you have, I think you don't need one, you just need four. Okay? So you have here, okay, well actually no, I don't think. So you have Rubo and Miyuto, and Miyuto, whatever, and Maktid, and Enomaktid, right? You have all four possibilities, right? So, Rove and Machbid, this is the Doraita problem. Right? Okay? Now, anything that's similar to it in one direction is a, is a Durabanan. Mira Machbid, it shares, they're similar because they're on the, on the Machbid row. So, that's a Durabanan problem. Rove and Eno Machbid is similar on the Rove column. So, that's Durabanan. This is not similar either on the row or on the column. It has, right? It's dissimilar in two ways. So this is actually mutar, miyuchainomakbid. Okay, that's what the Gemara says, right? So the Gemara says, well, why not say this should be usher? Because if we let this, it'll lead to that. If we allow this, right, it'll lead to to a miyuchainomakbid. To or if we allow a miyuchainomakbid, it'll lead to a rovainomakbid. And the answer is no, because that's still two degrees away from getting back, from getting to the to the core of the problem. It's exera exera, right? This is exera, and this is exera. This is musa. Because to make this usher, because it'll lead to this, but this is a zero. It'll have to go two, di- two degrees to get back to the Torah problem. Okay, so that's the principle that we don't make a zero leak zero. 
Um, now, here's the question. So that's all very nice. That's the halachas of, of, of Chatzitza. Where's the halachas of Moshe Misina in any of this? Right? We said, oh, the halachas of Moshe Misina is to tell us all this stuff about Rov HaMakbid and Nir HaMakbid. What's the halachas of Moshe Misina? Where did we say halachas of Moshe Misina? We said, Dvar Torah, Rov and Makbid, and Durabanan, one of the two. Which isn't. Which no, but isn't so, so, so what's the only possible thing here that's the halachal Moshe Misinai? The words Dvar Torah. So look at Rashi, Dvar Torah, halachal Moshe Misinai. Okay? So Rashi says, Dvar Torah normally we say means Doraita, but it is true that we didn't have any Pasuk to start. Where do we get wow. started off to say Rova Makbid? Right? So we, there was no puzzle that started us off with that idea. So Rashi says, oh no, that initial qua- definition, quantification of chatzitza is the halacha l'moshim Sinai to quantify chatzitza as rovu And then the rabbis come and they make the other gzeirot. But that's the standard explanation. But you might remember, I told you a second ago, that the Gemara in Brachos calls the shiurin, what does it say by the shiurin, the Gemara in Brachos? It's called the Shurabanan. Right, that there's some ambiguity of halacha moshmitin and drabanan. So there are some rishonim that actually say the Meiri has this that when it says drabanan, we don't allow, you know, we don't allow either rovin umakbid or mir hamakbid. Says that's the halacha moshmitin I, the gzera drabanan, which is like crazy because when do we ever hear of gzera and halacha moshmitin I? Halacha moshmitin I is classically like. A, you know, a technical thing that's, uh, that's, that's passed down. It's Xera is a classic rabbinic legislation. But I mentioned this because this passage is not clear in this thing. Which one are we identifying as the Halach Lamashim Sinai? Rashi identifies this, our core part. But the Meiri quotes those that say, no, the rabbinic Xera is what's being labeled Halach Lamashim Sinai, which then challenges our idea of what Halach Lamashim Sinai means if you can call a rabbinic zera halach l'moshim sinai. So that's not the standard explanation, but I just did want to share that with you. Okay, so now the Gemara is the third, uh, so we have shi'urin and chatzitzin, and now we get to mechitza. Okay, so mechitzin hada'amrin. So mechitza, we said, where's mechitza halach l'moshim sinai? We need to know the idea of ten trochen. So that, that shi'ur of a mechitza, I don't know why it's not wrapped up in shi'urin, but the minimum size of a mechitza, that's halach l'moshim sinai. So the Gemara says, honey, Reb Yehuda. That's good according to Reb Yehuda. That, did it, that couldn't learn it out from the Aron or from the Kruvin. You need to know the idea of a size of Mechitza's ten Shvachim from there. Ella, Rebbe Meir, Michael Amein. According to Rebbe Meir, that learns it from the Aron and the Kruvim, right? Because we sort of linked whether you could learn it from the Aron and Kruvim to another debate of Rebbe Yehuda and Rebbe Meir about how, measurements. So according to him, that you could link it to there. So, Michael Amemar, what do you, what, where is Mechitza Halach Lamash Misinai? Ten Tzvachim we already know from the Aaron and the Kruvim. So, Gemara says, no. Kiyasi Hilchasa, there's a lot of other halachas about Mechitza that you need Halach Lamash Misinai. The good, the lovud, the dofenakuma. All the things we're going to be dealing with a lot when we do sukkah, which is what I've been calling the magic extending wall and the magic bending wall, and all those things ha- are also Halach Lamash Misinai. So, according to Reb Yehuda, Ten Tzvachim. According to Rabbi Meir, he knows Ten Tzvachim elsewhere. 
But the idea that if you start with a mechitza, you can imagine it to go, you know, all the way up, or you can imagine it to go all the way down, or if you have a mechitza connected to pasul schach, you can imagine the mechitza to bend, right? Or that if it's within three tefachim of the schach, it's like it's connected. All of those magic, you know, types of things of a mechitza that obviously is not based on any pasuk. That all is tradition. That all is halach l'moshem isinai. I do again want to reiterate the interesting question about. How, where we're doing the measurements and what the measurement is said in reference to. Are we doing an internal measurement of ten tzvachim, you know, from the floor to the bottom of the schach, or an external measurement? This is one question. A related question is, what's invalid when it's less than ten tzvachim? Is the schach invalid or the wall invalid? And that could have relevance for certain halachot. So, if we learn from one pasuk where the kruvim sochachim shaded and made a canopy, and it has to be ten tzvachim to define it as a canopy, that means it's a problem in the schach, not a problem in the wall, it's a problem in the schach. But the Gemara here seems to say whether a mechitza has to be ten tzvachim is based on this question of the size of a sukkah. So that seems to say that it's a question of defining the wall. So it's interesting issue here about you know both what is the source of the of tent fucking for a sukkah, how much is it about this all stuff in the Kodesh Kadashim, which again is very powerful in terms of the imagery of the sukkah, or how much is it just an arbitrary number? And then a related question of are we defining the height of the wall? Or are we defining the height of the schach? Where is the problem considered to be located? And some of that has to do with the various sources as we've been discussing. This one emphasized mechitza is halach misinai. The verse about the kruvim and the sochachim and a canopy emphasizes the concern is with the schach. Okay, now we continue. Tanu um, Rabbanan, our rabbis taught. Shayim kiochasan, two of the walls are normal. The shlishis afilu tefach. And the third wall can be even a tefach. Okay? And we're going to have a whole discussion tomorrow where that tefach is situated. But what we're going to start with today is where do we know basically the numbers? Hold on, I just have to see if it's not an emergency. Okay, fine. Um, so, and the third one is even a tefach. Um, the for you. What's the debate? Of, I'm sorry, I skipped the one. Um, Rabbi Shimon over Rabbi Shimon says, Shalos Kilchas and Revius Afilutefa. No, he demands an extra wall. Three have to be normal. The fourth one could be even a tefa. So, what's the debate? The rabbis say there's a mother to the Masoras, which means, it's a way of saying that if the verse is written one way and read another way, which one um, is the, is, serves as the primary basis for halachic derivation? The way it's written or the way it's read? So misores tradition means the way it's read because you know the way it's written is in tradition. It's just the stuff that's written that you know that everybody has access to. The tradition is something external to the text. So yesh aim lemisores means we focus by the tradition of how it's read, as opposed to yesh aim lemikra. No, you know what? I got that wrong. I'm always getting you confused because logically it doesn't work that way. Okay, so Rashi says Mesoras actually means, I'm sorry, reverse that. Mesoras means the way it actually is, is written. Yeah, I never understand why that's the way. Mesoras means the way the text has been handed down, the way it's written. Mikra means the way it is actually read. So, okay, so Yesh Emu Mesoras means that it is ba- you base your halachic derivation on the way it's written. Reb Shimon Savar Yesh Emu Mikra. And Rabbi Shimon says you base your definition, a, a derivation, on the way that it is, that it is read. 
Okay, interesting use of the word aim, right? Mother, like where do we see that before? I mean, you know, we sort of say like, you know, we have the expression in English, right? Necessity is the mother of invention, right? Something gives birth to the following ideas. But normally when you talk about what, you know, where you apply your hermeneutic derivations, it just is a fascinating phrase, both because, as you see, I myself got confused with misoret and what, what, what refers to which, but also the use of the word aim. Anyway, so how does this work? The rabbis say you focus on the way that it is written. Now, what, what verse are we even talking about? So, basukot, basukot, basukot. It says three times in the Torah you shall dwell in Sukkot. Twice it says it without a vav. So, re- see that's basukat, basukat. We read it basukot, but it's written without a vav. And once it's written with a vav. So if you start by the way it's written, basically the idea is going to be the following. Every time it has the word sukkah, it tells you, other than the first time, the first is needed to tell you live in a sukkah. After they're seen as superfluous, you don't have to repeat the word sukkah again, right? It's just the antecedents. So you could just, you know, you could say bow, sit in it or whatever. Why do you keep on repeating the word sukkah? So every extra time it says the word sukkah after the first, is seen as telling you the need for X number of walls. All You count up the number of sukkahs, it says, and that's the number of walls that you need. That somehow is the assumption. So it says twice basukat without a vav. So if we're going yesh em lemesoret, the way it's written, then that counts as, as singular, even though it's read in the plural. So that's two. And basukot is in the plural. That's two more. That's four. Harekan arba. That gives you four, four like units to use. You need one unit for the basic point of the verse itself. Live in a sukkah. You're given, you're left with three, three units equals three walls. So two go the normal way. And then there's a halakha that comes along here that we forgot to mention. And tells you the third one doesn't have to be a third one. It, it uh, takes away from the third one. A representative third wall is enough just a tefah. So basically, you start with four, four units based on the way it's written, not the way it's read, and that gets you to, you discount the first one, it gets you to three walls. Rebshimim says, no, you don't go by the way it's written, you go by the way it's read. Basukot, basukot, basukot. It's read in the plural each time. So, that gives you six units. Each one counts for two. Harekan shisha, that's six. Now, you need one of the basukot, which is two. You need one of those words to tell you the simple sense of the pasuk, live in a sukkah. So you're really left with two times it says basukot, which is four. Pashalu arba, you're left with four. Shloshek tiochosak, so three normal. And tells you the fourth one is enough to be representative, just a tefach. Okay, so basically the way it works is how many times does the Torah say, how many sukkahs does the Torah refer to? And it refers to, you know, according to after the first use of the word sukkah. So according to one, you have two, you have, you have, you have three units. According to the other, you have four units. And that gets you the debate of three walls versus four walls. Okay, that's one explanation. The Bayesim, if you want, I'll say, the Kuleyama Yeshim Lemikra. Everybody says you go by the way it's read which should have given you, then you use, so if it's the way it's read, it's six, you discard the first one, which is a double, so you're left with four, so that should have given you four walls. So what's the debate? The hacha bahacha here's the debate. Marasavar schacha bayakra, no, one of the words, one of the units have to tell you just dwell in a sukkah, then you have four units. 
But of those four units, maybe you need one unit to tell you that you need schach in your sukkah. How, why you start using the units to teach you the number of walls? Use the units to teach you, first of all, that you need schach. Umar Starva, the other one says, you don't need a verse for the schach. Okay? So, right, people get what we're doing here, right? Right? It says, Batsukot, right? Teshru, whatever. Ki Batsukot, Oshakti, and whatever. It says, Batsukot, whatever. So, X number of times. So, if you go by the way that it's written, you have, a, I, I don't even know if the Vav is the Mali, the first one or not. Anyway, this is written in the singular. It's written from the Vav. That's written in the plural. Two, one, one. Use your four units to use. You need one unit to tell you live in a sukkah. Live in a sukkah. And then you have three, three remaining to tell you three walls. Of course, the okay. first unit is in the plural, so you really only... Well, have I don't... Is that true? I just made it... I don't know. Is it? You check? Yeah. Okay. Anyway, but we get to decide now how to, how to assign the units, okay? That's one approach. The other approach says, no, no it's no. red in the plural, so that's six, okay? But one of the words tells you live in a circle, so you have to use two units to do that, and use four units to tell you four walls. That's the first thing that the Gemara says, okay? But then it says one minute. We've got six units, and now we've got it down... You need two to tell you live in a circle. We've got it down to four. Why do you jump to say four walls? The four should tell you all the components of a circle. It should first have to tell you one unit tells you you need tzach. That's for one unit. And the other three tell you you need three walls. Right? So we're learning the different components. Let's learn it that way. And that will get you three walls, not four walls. So the other says, no, no, no. You don't need a puzzle for tzach. You don't need a unit for tzach. Why not? Because the word sukkah itself, the whole idea of sukkah is tzach. And therefore, as soon as you say dwell in a sukkah, you're saying dwell under schach. So it already sort of is included in like the basic meaning of the pasuk. Now the reason this is conceptually important, as I told you before, like the first Rashi of the Mesechet says, Hashem HaSchach Kri Yisukkah. Right? How much do you sort of see the schach as the basic definition and the walls are some secondary requirement? Or how much do you see the schach and the walls as like equally important? So in a way, that's what the Gemara is discussing here. Whether, you know, again, it's like this technical issue of numbers, right? So it seems very, like, mechanical. But there is a conceptual issue that the Gemara is, is raising, which is how much is the schach essentially the identity of a sukkah, and you don't even need to discuss it. Or how much is it? No, it's a component. The same way the walls are a component, and they're all sort of at an equal level. Okay, so that's approach number two. Um, if you want, I'll tell you. You go by the way that it is uh, written. Um, so that would start you with four. Here's the debate. And uh, then you use one for the basic purpose of the verse itself, and you're left with three. So if you're left with three, what's the debate? Here's the debate. That the halacha motion you see now is coming and tell you that three, it's coming to tell you, yeah, but not full three. The third one can be representative, could be a tefach. Umar sorry, the other one holds, kiyasi hilkos alahosif. No, actually, it's telling you <coughs> fundamentally three, but three plus. So therefore, we all agree we start with three, but then there's a halacha motion you see now. Does the halacha motion you see now say three plus a little bit, or does it say three, but only a representative third? So is the Halakha Moshe Misenai decreasing or adding? That's another way of understanding it. The um, Ibai same, if you want, I'll tell you. Everybody agrees that the Halakha is coming to take away. Um, so you would, if you start with three, you take away one, you're left with two, with two and a bit. 
So what's the uh, p- debate? Yeshem Lemesaris, and you go by the way it is written. So if you go by the way it's written, so you need one for the core use of the verse, and then you're left with three. Then you should go down to two and a half. So what's the debate? Here, the Hacha Bedorshin Chilos Kamifluki. The debate is, can you explicate, can you use for this type of math and for this type of, you know, derivations, the first reference in the verse? We've been saying all along, the first reference is off-limits. The first reference is needed for Pshat. You can only start counting the additional references. So maybe not. Maybe I'm entitled to count even the first reference. And then I would start with four rather than starting with three. Okay, Marsavar, one holds... Dorshim um, you can start with the first one. You can use the first reference, so you start with four. So four gets you down to three and a half. Umar Savar ain't Dorshim And the other one says, no, you don't start with the first one. You start with three and you get down to two and a half. So all that was very interesting. It was a lot of math or a lot of just, yeah, how many numbers do you count? It wasn't really conceptual at all, except for the question in the middle, one possibility of whether schach is the intrinsic idea of the sukkah. But of course, if I told you there was a debate of two and a half walls or three and a half walls, you would probably immediately assume that they're debating how permanent-like, how house-like does the sukkah have to be? I mean, two and a half is not much of a serious structure. That's a real representation of dirasarai, of a sukkah as a temporary. Three and a bit already is much more protective and is much more house-like, and maybe that's more like sukkah diras keva. Well, in a way, that's what the Gemara says right here. Okay? Um, um, where, where are we? Rav Masna, Amar Rav Masna says, Here's the reason of Rav Shimon. This is the verse we started the Masechus with from Yeshayahu, this vision of, of, of the times of Mashiach. And, it, like, and that also is a vision of God's cloud and God's divine presence hovering over, you know, Yerushalayim. So, and so also very, you know, important that type of imagery with Sukkot, because also, you know, the Chag Sukkot is, also has a whole messianic theme to it as well, certainly by, you know, certainly in the Haftorah, and the Haftorah. So anyway, so there's the imagery of God's presence in, with, uh, in a cloud with a messianic sort of tinge, and that is, God's presence is, you know, a Sukkah is a covering over, and this is what the verse says. So it's not talking about the halachic sukkah, but it is talking about this word of the Yud sukkah, which is connected, as we saw in the beginning of the Masech, at least by some, to the halachic sukkah. And it shall be a canopy or a covering, litzel yomam, for shade of the day, mechorei, from the heat, ulemachsel umistor mizerem umimatar, and from a protection and a, and a shielding from the sort of, from the, from like the, 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 the uh, you know, the, the storm, the storm and the, and the rain, and, and the rain. Okay, which means that a sukkah is not enough just to give shade. A sukkah actually has to protect you from the elements. So part of what's protecting you from the elements is not just the schach, but the walls. Okay? So therefore, if the walls are part of the protection, and it's not just shade, but it's protection, then walls are also have, need to be more, and you need three and a bit and not two and a bit. Which, by the way, is interesting. It's not saying it's just as diras and diras keva which to me would have been the easiest boxes to put it in. It's actually also, we a minute ago were talking about are the schach and the walls of a different level of importance. Well, in a way, what the Gemara here is having Rebbe Shimon saying is the walls are an equal part of what the protection of a sukkah is about. So they're equally important to the schach. It's not just about shade. It's about protection from all directions. If you want to think about the Anane covered of all directions. 
So the walls actually have, are equally important as the schach, or have to do an equal function, and it's not just about the shade. Okay, so it's a, I think it's a powerful idea, because the Gemara before also said that according to Rabbi Shimon, um, you don't need a verse for the for, No, forget that. That would actually work. Anyway, so it's interesting now, the idea of three and a half walls leads us to, you know, conceptually, rather, if you get it beyond the numbers, can be read as the way I just suggested, which is, I think, sort of the most obvious boxes to put it in. Diras Arai versus Diras Keva. But also what the Gemara says is it actually makes us thinking about the function of a sukkah. You know, if the function is, is it just shade, and then it's all about the schach, or is it about protection from the elements, and then the walls are included as well, and then you actually might need warm walls, but it raises the importance of the walls. Yes, Charlie? Two things. First, we're back to the beginning of this. They were talking about spellings. And there's an Amorai statement in Kedushin that says that we lost the Mazor for the exact spellings of the words. But here, we're deriving yeah. Halakha for spellings. Yeah, I mean, just because we lost it doesn't mean we have no idea. You know, it means that there's a certain amount of imprecision. But yes, I mean, it is, it is a good point that the Gemara often does this plays with the, you know, the exact spellings and uh, assumes that we do, the, you know, we do it based on what we have. But talking about the spellings, I wanted to point out that <coughs> in the word sukkah, there's a very famous and choose gra who says that the word sukkah basically represents the, stan- the standard configurations of a sukkah. Because this is basically four walls, this is basically three walls, and this is two walls and a bit. <laughs> <laughs> so, there you that's go. So, I don't know what the this is. The second, <laughs> the second thing is yeah. this last uh, pusik is from Navi, not from... Yeah, but again, we did it at the beginning of the second. It's revealing yeah. what the meaning of yeah, the word Sukkah is. we did it for the exact opposite reason. We said the shade is what's important. That's why it has to be less than 20. Right, it looked at the first half of the verse. And they actually say it's because the, the shade is more important, it's linked in, the protection is sort of less important. Now we're going to... Yeah, it's a good point. It's way. a very good point. I mean, I see the first... I mean, they were, they were different uh, Amoroyim, but... Um, so, but you're right. He ended before this list Shal Yomam. He ended by the he. I mean, I mean, he ended by the Sukkot Tiel with Yomam. He didn't look at the end of the verse, and here and it's he incorporating. He discounts it, and here yeah. it's incorporating. Yes, that's an excellent point. Okay, so we will end here for today. <laughs>